anytime Hugh Grant goes to jail, right? It's this movie, um, Paddington 2, and I guess real life is... <laughs> for the Dangerous Theater Room in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Yishin. And welcome to episode 342 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about the D&D movie, Honor Among Thieves, and how to take inspiration from it for your campaign. And later, Kurosaki Ichigo is at war with himself in the Character Creation Forge. So the Gates of Morning recap will take a break this week because uh, we got a lot to talk about, I think, because Shane, we alluded to this last week. This is the best D&D movie of all time, assuming you only count actually branded D&D movies. I, I mean, it, it's up there for non-D&D or non-branded D&D movies, too. Uh, I agree. You know, it, uh, we can get into it. So we'll we'll talk about it in a little bit of a spoiler-free fashion to start, and then uh, we will clearly demarcate where uh, we're going to start digging into the movie itself. And if you haven't seen it and you care, you might want to skip ahead. Um, yeah. So, and we'll put in the show notes uh, like the the section that is the the beginning of the spoiler-free. Or the, the beginning of the spoilers so that you can uh, skip through there. Yeah. Uh, now, let's make it clear. This is not a review of the movie. Oh, right? no. Like, Like, if you're... Like, we're going to be talking about... And now that you have watched the movie, <laughs> how do you um, steal from it to mm-hmm. put in your game? Either yeah. as a player or a GM. I mean, I can review the movie right now. It's great. <laughs> You should, like, you should go for, watch it for a pg-13 action movie like right. and, and much less a dnd branded one it's great uh i i've think i've now watched it three times uh i i know people who saw top gun maverick that many times which is insane to me so like i'd rather watch it than that or avatar this year yeah it's interesting it's got mass appeal right like the worst thing i've heard about it is People calling it, you know, fantasy Avengers, which is like uh, pretty much What's, exactly what you're going for in mm-hmm. a campaign. Yeah, it's kind of what D&D becomes. Right. Um, now, if you are listening to the show, we assume that you play RPGs. You probably play D&D. You probably play some version of fantasy. But we're going to be talking about um, sort of some of the techniques and maybe like some of the fourth wall breaking that happens in the movie and how you can potentially like mine some of that. Um, I, I guess the question though would be, you know, if you haven't seen it already or if you have seen it and, you know, you're planning a, a character or a game, is it actually going to be useful for you to use it? Because like you see D&D in media, right? Like, you know, Stranger Things or whatever. And it's not really applicable or translatable for the most part, to your own game, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I think short short answer is yes, right? Like it's it's not the main reason to watch it, right? Keeping in mind that it's a you know it's a PG thirteen action movie, right? Like that's what it is. Um, but it is faithful enough to D anD D in its like story structure and in its like tropes, while also giving enough of those like nods to if you already know this about D, like you'll appreciate this little easter egg mm-hmm. right um like it gives you enough of that to be very entertaining for the D 
like fan or or at least you know those knowledgeable of D D that like you get kind of the the both pieces of it but like everybody who's seen it has enjoyed it uh that that i know of whether or not they care about D D. yeah absolutely i've i've heard from some people who you know like fantasy but don't actually play tabletop who have said hey maybe they're gonna you know try tabletop now i will say i i I don't think the movie is going to be particularly useful in converting people who haven't played the game already, at least not people who weren't already probably going to try D&D or tabletop at some point anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. It doesn't it's not a recruiting pitch for tabletop gaming as an activity. Not that it needs to be. But if yeah, exactly. But if you're interested in tabletop gaming and this is what you know about D&D. Right. Or you learn about D&D through this movie and you're like, okay, well, what is this game that it's based on? Like, I think, yeah, it's a perfectly fine entry point. Yeah. If you are watching this movie with a friend who hasn't played tabletop or, you know, that they saw it, I think it's very reasonable for you to say the events for the most part in this movie are a very good D&D campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're at a table, this is the kind of story that you could tell um if everything goes pretty well at the table yeah and and given enough time (laughs) yes right (laughs) because it it covers i don't know a solid like six adventures probably Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. in one in one film right there's the heist but inside the heist there's the quest but inside the quest yeah right there's there's a dungeon crawl it's like okay yeah so like each of those is like several sessions so like yeah you know if you had a couple years like you could you could kind of get the the whole arc of the film uh somehow if you handle the flashbacks (laughs) (laughs) now last thing i want to talk about before we actually get into the movie itself is we've seen over the past few years, you know, um, D&D media that isn't specifically people playing the game, like Critical Role, for example, has been both a good entry point to bring in players to the hobby, but also sets expectations. And I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about the expectations that someone who hasn't played tabletop will have after watching this movie about like what the game is. Uh, I think they're going to expect it to be far more mainstream than uh, what D and D has certainly what it what it reflected when I started playing right in like the nineties. Um, like like you said, right? It's fantasy Avengers, right? Like there's a lot of those tropes and a lot of those like pieces of the puzzle that like come together to make the movie that are like people understand right like mainstream Mm -hmm. people understand like you know like lord of the rings right star wars like that stuff isn't like tropey and and like in a nerd corner anymore like it's also mainstream and so like what this has done is it's turned a DD, which was an uber nerd brand into a comic book film right Mm. um except it just has a little bit more heart than half of the cut like the mcu movies like it that's actually especially lately yes it it just it reminds me of like the first iron man right where it was like whole or like the original spider-man right where it was just like oh oh they could make like a comic book movie but it doesn't have to suck (laughs) like (laughs) you know what i mean like and you know like so so many of the mcu films have just completely gotten unwatchable but like this is like one of the it feels like one of those early ones where it's like it's not just it's not launching a franchise it's just 
fun <laughs> like it just it's it's like lovingly crafted by people who enjoy the media and the premise and are like all in on delivering like a fun time for almost two hours yeah i was gonna say this for later but it's not a spoiler so i i think it's good to note here one thing that's happened with later mcu movies is like you know the jokes come fast and furious and they undercut the drama right mm-hmm. And and I think it's an apt comparison to earlier MCU movies, um, maybe even like as far as like Thor three, you know, Wait, um, is that Love and Thunder? No, it's the one before it, which is I don't know. It's the one with the one with Thor and Hulk. Crap, I don't remember what it's called. That Whatever, does it doesn't matter. Not narrow it down for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it's the one that's better than Love and Thunder because apparently yes, because Love movie and Thunder, ever made. Love and Thunder is sort of like the archetypal. Um, like the platonic ideal of how to suck all the drama out of your movie with quips. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> and I think the thing that I really enjoyed about this movie is that it reflected something that I'm always shooting for at a table, which is there was comedy. People were laughing, right? But the laughter never came at the expense of the characters, mm-hmm. right? Like the laughter came at the expense of the players. Like if you can imagine this movie as... You know, people sitting around a table playing, you know, I am making fun of you, the player who is playing a bad sorcerer, mm-hmm. right? Who's like screwing up a lot. But when you have a, a dramatic beat with your character or like the bard is talking about their family and how much they care about them, no one is ridiculing that character. The other characters are taking that very seriously. The other right. characters are using that as emotional beats for their own characters mm-hmm. to build a story that actually ends up being really meaningful in the end. So so I, I like that you touched on that because they managed to get that pseudo fourth wall break into mm-hmm. the film. Like specifically the very beginning, there's there's a a flashback to you know give the bard's backstory right um, which is like that session zero right here's my backstory right right but as yeah. he's going he keeps getting interrupted or he keeps interrupting himself with like non sequiturs and like checking on the main like main timeline like what's going on in the room right and it's like is everybody paying attention like i really think we should wait for this other person you know and it's just like it keeps going um and then you finally get to the backstory and then and then things advance but it like it has those kind of moments where it's like sometimes it felt like you were retelling a story from a tabletop game right mm-hmm. complete with like the hitches and false starts that happen in a, like with you know just five to seven humans gathered around a table um and then other times it just felt like you know anytime you get to like an action sequence or anything like that like it doesn't feel necessarily like a D fight as much as it feels like just a very well choreographed uh like decent budget hollywood action movie right you, you know what the fights felt like to me uh, the that pause after a couple of rounds of combat where the gm is like Okay. Okay. So, so here's, here's what, what just happened. happened. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's a that's a narrative that flows. Right. The the, the <laughs> idealized version of like what our combat actually meant, even though we were just fumbling around for five foot squares and like, can I do this? And you know, is it my turn? Yeah. Okay. So why don't we move into spoilers? Because I will tell you after the spoilers, I'll tell you the fight that felt very much like a D and D fight to me. All right, so let's jump into it. Spoilers here. Uh, we'll also note when we um, finish this section and move into character creation forge in the show notes. So be right back. 
uh, the final fight when they're fighting with Bigby's grasping hands. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That, that one, like, felt very d It was, like, absolutely chaotic. The problem is, of course, that, like, it's one versus many, and that never works in D&D, but, like, that fight felt like such a D&D <laughs> fight. They're shouting spells at each other. Like, the very last sequence where she, like, tra- ends up trapping them in the time stop, you know, like there's a moment where it's like they're all running up and it's like i don't know some some cone like cone of lightning or something and that it's like shield spell and that it's like three misses from a firebolt and then like you know dodging a <laughs> dodging an attack from the you know it's just like it's like so chaotic and frenetic and it's exactly what a dnd fight is like it's like i'm throwing everything at the wall it's nothing like can't hold anything back last fight of the night <laughs> right and and let's see so she's obviously you know a high level uh wizard who is casting way too many ninth level spells in order to like, right. But she has to be able to, in order to be a solo boss fight. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's even that moment where the Druid uses that dumb little slingshot, but it absolutely pays off because it like hits the wizard and she, it breaks her concentration. concentration. Yeah. The concentration breaks multiple times. The, the illusion thing to sneak into the, the, Mm -hmm. into the castle as well. Like when it starts glitching out, like anyway, um, which is like a really great way to translate, game mechanics into something on screen and i think i'll just say this now like you don't have to go all all in on this like in description at your table but it can be helpful like what does it look like in the real world of of your campaign when someone loses their concentration i think usually we sort of get caught up in like the the mechanics and the minutiae of you know the back and forth of combat, particularly if you're playing like 5e D&D, you know, because it kind of gets to be a slog. Um, but it, it, I think it's nice to be able to step back for a second and just be like, okay, but like the, the, the game says, oh, the spell ends, right? But I say, oh, my face, the, the illusion gets wonky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it starts glitching out and then repeats, fuh, 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 fuh. In defiance oh, of the sensors. Melting. Yeah. <laughs> And then they're like, I think something's wrong here. Like, perfect guards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was one of the things that, like, going into it um, uh, in in the car ride over, like, that that Jim had warned me about was, like, there's a lot of, like, where they have taken directly from D&D, and you'll recognize it, but it's like an Easter egg because they're not going to, even though concentration at one point they do actually name, um... But, like, they're not going to just, like, call it out. Like, the Green Flame Blade for the Thay Assassin, right. right? Like, he just uses Green Flame Blade all the time. Never stops. But, like, he doesn't shout Green Flame Blade. <laughs> like, he right. just has a, you know, just has a sword. Um, so stuff like that where it's just, like, it's very subtle. But it, like, it just feels like a payoff for, like, the D&D knower. Mm. So speaking of, like, stealing for your game you can do things like that you can use that in description and characterization if you're a gm for you know enemies or or npcs and allow your players to glean information right like their sword lights up with green fire hold on a second is this green flame blade maybe we shouldn't stand next to each other you know yeah i mean some of that stuff you've got to be careful with though right because the movie has the benefit of not needing to communicate game mechanics at the same time as a player, it's very annoying if like, oh, well, he has a green flaming sword. Well, is it green flame blade or is it something else? Like, 
do I know? Like, okay, spend an action to make a skill check. Like, oh, please kill me. You know? Like, yeah, yeah. The, oh, the movie, God, the movie don't you, don't doesn't do bother with that at all. <laughs> but, like, the book says that you should, you know? Yeah, and I think in at a table, just let it be a reward for game knowledge, you know? And, like, the table talk can be, oh, I think that's Green Flame Blade, you know? Like, yeah. we've adventured enough to know that, like, that's probably what that is. Right, and that's, like, you almost get the player who knows it gets to say it to the table, almost like the um, the overbearing husband gets to, like, you know, nudge uh, his wife in the ribs and be like, that's a spell from the book. <laughs> 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 Which is definitely not what I did. Not at all. <laughs> the first time. <laughs> Wait, you got her to watch it more than once? Oh no 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 the 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 first time that I saw the movie I ah went, okay, okay yeah 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 um or at least the first time I saw the whole thing I it, okay yeah it, I I watched the movie in fits and starts because I was I fell asleep I mean, multiple same. times not the, not the film's fault um so anyway so I do want to talk about as far as actually using the movie in our game something the movie does so incredibly well is it's set in Forgotten Realms. It's set in notable, like, capital letter places, people, entities, organizations in Forgotten Realms. Here's what it is. Here it is in a sentence. That's it, you know? And it does such a great job of, like, generating interest without overcomplicating the actual introduction, right? It's like, okay, so we're in this prison. It's a gigantic spire in the middle of snowy wasteland uh where is it it's called Icewind dale great <laughs> don't want to go back there <laughs> you know it's like okay we're going to a city called neverwinter and there's apparently some gladiatorial games called the high sun games great don't need to know anything else about those i know they sound bad you know it's just like that's all you need to know the harpers good guys got it Thay. right we're going to the underdark that sounds like it sucks that sounds awful uh, confirmed it's awful <laughs> you know it's just like they do such a good job of being like here's the thing that there's more to learn about we'll get there don't worry about it just like it's cool you know and like they don't bother getting bogged down and like oh this is the forgotten realms and in the year 942 this happened and in the 14th century this happened and blah 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 like they don't bother mentioning that there are 10 million pages of lore about this place they're just like hey here's what you need to know it's actually very very little it's more interesting that way if i just put it into action that i try to like lore dump you right it was the year of smothered stars yeah uh and i think in practice a question we actually get relatively often is like how do you lore dump how do you introduce someone to a setting that they haven't been involved in before and often like you know, it's feed them as much information as they want. Like if someone wants to read, you know, 300 pages of a Drist book before they play in your Forgotten Realms campaign, sure, why not? But if they don't want to, or if there's no time for that, just play. Because as first level characters, you probably don't know all that much about the world, especially right. given that it's like a medieval setting. So just traipse about. And if they stumble across something that they do know a lot about, just tell them, oh yeah, you know the High Sun games. Like, I don't think the the bard succeeded on like a lore check about the high sun games. I think the GM was like, Oh yeah, you remember these from when you were a kid. And then they stopped. Right. A bunch right. of people died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people died. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, 
I think throughout this, we'll, we should also talk about things that really work for the movie but that probably don't work in your game. Like, don't steal this. And one is like, Elkin is not a bard, right? He's not like a D&D bard. He's a, he's a pop culture bard in that he's a rogue who plays the lute. Uh, I don't think he ever casts a spell. He doesn't cast a spell. He also doesn't do any roguing. He's he's a planner, right? Like Okay, he's, he's in any class with high charisma and plays and the loot. Yeah, high charisma, low wisdom. Well, I guess canonically low intelligence because the intellect of ours weren't it. Right. He's an expert. <laughs> he's an NPC yeah, right. class. Like he never does anything in combat other than like swing his loot. He doesn't even have a weapon. Right, but he only crits when he uses the loot. True, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the thing. Like, there are um, Wizards in, uh, released actual character sheets for these characters. They might be perfectly good character sheets. They are not accurate representations of the characters in the movie. So just don't, don't uh, get tripped up by thinking that they are. There's some weirdness there where, like... And again, like, it's only cognitive dissonance if you know... D D well right but like they pulled in the things that they needed to do cool stuff and like they they left those nods to to people who recognize it but like it's also not the point you know it's like it wasn't about making lore accurate like villains uh or, or not lore accurate like mechanically accurate villains and mechanically right. accurate characters so like who cares um but like there's there's in the final fight she she uses meteor swarm as part of an intimidate check because, like, none of those meteors hit anything. <laughs> and, I mean, the the, uh, the druid does, like, 13 wild shapes in, right, like, uh-huh. one chase. And then also one of those is an owlbear. <laughs> right. So, like... <laughs> Which, like, it, I mean, another thing is, like, sometimes just let rule of cool happen. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that druid chase is the one that people who love druids and wild shape, that's what they want to do. That, right. And it's impossible in 5th edition, but it's, part of that is because in 5e, Wild Shape is tied to getting an additional bag of hit points, mm-hmm. and therefore it must be restricted until 20th level, yep. which means that like, if you just want to do all of the, the fun, interesting sneaking and changing, you're just not allowed to do it for kind of arbitrary reasons, even though like you don't want like she didn't turn into a deer for the like the six hit points you know it's an interesting take there on what would make the druid cool if it's like because she never goes back to the same form twice right right? so it's almost like okay well i know whatever nine forms right but i can only do each of them once a day so now it's Mm -hmm. not about how many times i can do it like i kind of have an arbitrary number of forms but like turning into a worm when i'm trying to escape is not going to be helpful you know like the fly was great to infiltrate but now is not fast enough to get me out of here i become a deer because like i don't know it's either that or like orca (laughs) (laughs) and and i think uh, again like so so the the people who like wrote and directed the film obviously like they you know directed game night they they're gamers they've obviously played D before and i think a lot of this is you can see the at least the thought process of like what would this be like at a table and i think the point when she's discovered as a fly and then as a mouse drops into the suit of armor 
and then turns back into herself and starts walking away in the armor. That's the point where I, as a GM, would look at the player and just be like, I don't care what your sheet says. Just keep doing what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Like if, <laughs> yeah. if you want a wild tip again, do it. Like, right. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was also like one of those things that was like rule of cool for the movie because the right thing was to just stay in the armor as the mouse, like, and then wait. Right. Like they easily, easily could have just avoided detect. Also, like, they didn't know what she looked like because she never wild shaped into a person. So, like, why did she try to hide again when she was on the street? Like, she was already away. You know, it's like, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's fridge logic. It's a movie. Like, it's fine. That's how games work, too. <laughs> like, right. And at the, at the table, like, some sometimes it's just like, well, you know what? I, I really want to actually turn back into me in this suit of armor and walk away in the suit of armor. Like, how often right, do you get yeah. to do that? Exactly. <laughs> Um, the other, so the other thing that made this all work, I think for the neutral, right? So for the person who isn't super steeped in either D and D or specifically forgotten realms lore is that they hung the story on a couple familiar, like archetypes, right? Like it is primarily a heist movie, right? And there's the sort of intermittent like dungeon crawl, right? Like they take, they take the trip to the mines of Moria. They take the you know the the arena for the high sun games right is like that kind of more i don't know frantic but still kind of a dungeon crawl kind of feel like the, they're the set pieces that i would build a campaign around I'll be, yeah definitely yeah yeah and so like but but the audience understands those right like there's enough like film language out there that like the audience isn't wondering what's going on here it's like it's a freaking heist movie of course it's it's strangers coming together to do a job right and then the binds and then there's that the, the planning scene and then of right. course things go wrong and the, yeah yeah and then they improvise and they go back and like they figure it out right and they become better friends as a result like okay yeah it's a heist movie i get it right um and so like i think that helps a lot because it gives you as somebody who isn't initiated into everything that is D, &D right or everything that is a tabletop game it gives you something to like relate back to to make sure you're on the right track that you're doing the right thing that like i'm following along right and so i think that makes it a really really low barrier of entry that isn't necessarily always there with like diving into a campaign head first with three players who know what they're doing and one person who's brand new and their head spinning mm -hmm. we're in this space in terms of pop culture where dnd has been around long enough where pretty much all of us playing the game have also consumed media that has been influenced by D&D, right? So it's like, where where does the D&D heist come from? Right. Is that the 1960s Ocean's Eleven? Is it a different campaign that someone played in in the 80s and then they made a movie in the 90s? Like, And that's great. That's excellent, right? It, it means that it's all sort of wrapped up together and you don't need to worry about like, is your audience, is the table or the players, is the GM going to understand what I'm trying to do here? Probably they're going to get it. Right. Yeah, archery was lame until Legolas did it in like 2000, right? Like, <laughs> and now everyone's an archer. And now, well, and now it's like, okay, well, archery can be cool. <laughs> I mean, it was cool in the 30s when like they were making a bunch of Robin Hood movies, and then it <laughs> sure. stopped. But I mean, and for then, D and D players, even right. like Legolas made archery cool. Another thing I like about these set pieces is they they work as sort of like signposts for your game, right? So. It feels to me like this campaign was was centered or, or focused on the the like personal goals 
of the characters, right? So it begins with a bard and a barbarian who like have basically lost their daughter slash adopted daughter, right? Mm-hmm. And the goal is get her back, get revenge. Okay, how do we do that? And I and I like that the task set before them was impossible. It was just okay. What does the fiction say? We go. Oh, it says like it's it's freaking never winter, right? It's you're going to infiltrate castle never. Um, that's impossible. You're not going to do it. Um, there's a vault. Oh, what's blocking the vault? Um, you have more cannons, arcane seal, right? It's just, <laughs> right. Which is which is definitely just a GM being like, I used to play Greyhawk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Now you've set up the problem, it's impossible. And then segue directly to a way out, which is there's no way, unless you were the most powerful archmage in Faroon, that you're going to get through that seal. Unless. Unless. (laughs) (laughs) You complete this quest. Right. (laughs) Okay, so let's transition a bit because we talked a little bit about the set pieces. I want to highlight one sequence that I love and... Well, like I would love to steal. So the Underdark scene specifically, like, mm-hmm. and you know the, the I mean, Which the fight one? is awesome. Where a where a giant like the chubby dragon, stuffed tabby cat of a dragon. I, I love <laughs> the chubby. Them. I love the chubby dragon. That is so campy and so fun. Uh, I love. I mean, the paladins fight scene is nuts. But I don't even mm-hmm. care about the action. Like, I'm not even talking about the action sequences. Like, I'm talking about like the setting itself, like the set dressing, right? Of like, what does the Underdark look like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like what's there and why is it there and like what is life in the underdark like like that has always been one of those things to me where you have to kind of like balance this mental model of like how hollow is the earth how much like how far below the crust are you that like you have these like huge vaulted ceilings and like there's pits of lava and like all this sort of stuff right and like how do you live there, you know? And, like, it's very hard to kind of wrap your head around what that looks like. They did a great visualization. And, like, the Mines of Moria were clearly an inspiration, and that's cool, mm-hmm. too. But, like, seeing, like, the one city that they sneak by with the intellect devourer, seeing, like, the entrance that they came through, and then, you know, the the final place where they actually get the Helm of Disjunction and, like, the, um, the, the hanging city, right? Like, three different representations of what the Underdark is all of them I love because it like, okay, now I feel like ready. I could take that and I can go do an underdark adventure and not feel like, are you in six foot tall caverns, like hunched over? Are you like in, you know, comically over large, you know, vaulted caverns that you can't even see the ceiling and it's unclear why this is underdark, you know, like, cool. Great. The only thing that wasn't there were spiders. Um, which great I'm, leave that for the I'm sequel i'm so fine with it. <laughs> glad there were no drow uh, i don't want to see live action drow probably not going to be a good choice no ever okay <laughs> just don't do it <laughs> <laughs> and and like i compare this to like the beginning of out of the abyss where you know that takes place in the underdark which was just like the feeling for me for that adventure was just much more dreary and and dark and like you know like Oh, I'm in a dirty tunnel, you know, which is like all of the Drist books. It was bright. You could see. I know. <laughs> it yeah, was colorful. Exactly. Uh, even in a, you know, an abandoned city, like because it was lit by the lava beneath, like there was actually, and it was reflected from a, a ceiling that was low enough, like you could see things. It was great. <laughs> because this is the part of the movie where Zank is with the party 
I want to talk about the oh, DMPC the because he's a DMPC, GMPC. Oh, right? Like he yeah. definitely is. Absolutely. And, and this is one thing that I think worked really well in the movie, but absolutely would not work for the most part in your game. Mm-hmm. And I think if you haven't used a GMPC and you watch this movie and you're like, oh, great, right. Like, like a high level person who comes in, knows what they're doing. They're competent. They like get the party through like dangerous situations and like beat some obstacles for them and then leave like, don't nope. don't do it in in your game because the way that it's depicted in the movie is the absolute best it could possibly go. Uh, well, the thing is, it's still not great for the players, right? Because they still have no agency, right? Like, yeah, yeah they're, just, they're just sort of like dragged along by the nose, absolutely, and, and they get to use Dimension Door. Like that was their entire contribution, right? Was Dimension Door? Well, they got to watch a guy have a cool fight. I really hope that GM rolled it out between themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the fight was awesome for a film. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that fight sequence was insane. And his like goofy little like click to throw sword move. Awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> also, also really cool, I think, for for a boss battle thing that you could use, right, is it it got to demonstrate one that he was very skilled right and an amazing badass fighter who took out these assassins and then that was immediately negated in a positive way where it wasn't that the threat was over the threat still exists because they just stand up again yeah i mean i i think if if i'm gonna be as generous as possible and like how do you take what do you take from this to a game it's that like it's fine to have him there to you know whatever like have a problem that he can't solve for you, right? He knew the code to the bridge, but the bridge has been broken. You don't have to step on it yourselves. Um, so you need to find another way across. Great, you solve that problem, he'll do the rest. Um, but then like his fight needs to be a description of him fighting off like these five assassins to give you time to run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. Or he and fights then, off the main assassin and you fight and, the other five. And you fight the others or whatever. But like his his contribution is effectively out of focus and off screen as soon as you have something more urgent to do. Um, and that way it's not negating it. Um, you know, the, I have sort of mixed feelings too about his like, you know, hero dive onto the head of the dragon to stab it, um, to, to save, uh, Edgen. Is that his name? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and I actually remember save Chris Pine. their names. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, like it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so he fails to save, he doesn't make it. And as the DM, you're like, oh God, what can I do to like not kill this character? Uh, I guess I'll throw my DMPC in the way. Fine. But I'm also not going to kill my dragon. <laughs> right. But I'm also not killing the dragon. So it's like, uh, okay. Like, you know, last get out of jail free card. It's probably fine if that happens in a game, but like, you don't want to be betting on that. Right. Right. But then, you know, like every DMPC you you give the t- the characters time to make fun of him afterwards because that mm-hmm. guy sucked. And even during, right? Right. And actually, I think this is probably the the best takeaway about Zink is if if you, I mean, just don't, right? But if you do have a DMPC or really when you're characterizing NPCs, you know, maybe maybe it's the queen and she's very powerful or whatever, right? Like the if the players don't have leverage over them, I think there's a tendency on the GM's part to sort of ridicule them, to like have your 
your NPC be haughty to say like, well, why do I need you? But if you look at everything that the Zink does, he is always boosting the party. He's always telling them, I believe in you. You can do it. I, I think in the end, you're going to do the right thing. Now he's sort of you know, hilariously wooden about it, right? Which is like another, <laughs> which is like, you know, I'm the GM and I'm really tired and I don't, I don't exactly. have the energy to characterize this person, right? <laughs> but also like is a, a good version of a lawful good paladin who is overly good as opposed to annoyingly overly lawful, right? So I did like the characterization where, you know, if you were going to have someone interacting with a party, they make fun of him and he's cool with it right he doesn't make fun of them back he just he does the he does the drax thing right the, it was like i don't i don't understand sarcasm i don't get that that and then the you know i find irony cuts deepest in the one who uses it <laughs> <laughs> it's like i don't right he's he's the straight man right. and that's and that's what he should be he shouldn't be stealing the comedic spotlight from the party right because that's that's the thing is he has to steal spotlight from other areas so you need to give the thing the party loves the most their voice right. uh you need to ensure that he isn't stealing that and then of course um when the party has what they need in order to, to accomplish the rest of the quest what does he do well he fucks off he, like he should he walks off in this bit of perfectly <laughs> straight line for like two scenes <laughs> that was the dumbest thing it's like he's walking so straight because okay so there's there's the scene in the departed right where uh where they uh they they kill those two guys out in like the the marsh and like one of them falls over at like a weird angle into the other one and like it's just like it's like this bizarre thing that's shown on screen right it's like like an execution style murder and then like five seconds pass and then one of the characters on screen remarks that guy fell funny <laughs> like you know but it's like you're not even sure if you saw it and like you don't, you're not even sure if he's like walking awkwardly straight or not and then like chris pine is like he even walks straight. <laughs> what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Oh, there's a boulder. What is he going to He's going over it. <laughs> Which I think was also like fun, just in terms of the movie, fun nods to video games as well, where it's like, well, what's the pathing on this character? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is he going to go around? No, he's going over. Yeah, it was very, very camp, but but very amusing to me. Um, shortly after that scene, actually, is the attunement scene, which I do want to talk about as well, because attunement becomes a major plot point of whether or not the sorcerer can attune to the helm of disjunction, um, which, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily adopt that part of it um, for for a game unless like you had a situation where like you were trying to attune to something that you weren't qualified for. And so you were needing to like overcome that and that became a plot point. But what I thought was really interesting is the characterization of what attunement looks like, right? It's like seeing that displayed on screen was really interesting because it's something you just often overlook and it's not something you want to beat to death either. But like if you have heirloom weapons or you have, you know, like artifacts or, or legendary items or things like that, that you want to add that kind of like gravitas to like that sort of like borrowing that type of like interaction for attunement is really interesting, right? Like a previous owner of the item uh like their their psychic imprint like needs to be overcome in order to attune or or has a conversation with you in order for you to attune or or has some message for you i think it's like really really an interesting way to do it to add a little bit of opportunity for the players to characterize something that's otherwise like you just flip a switch and wait an hour 
Right. You're like you completely hand wave it. You right. know, when was the last time anyone announced, oh, I attuned to this? Uh, well, when they were swapping one of their attuned items uh, at a right. at a short rest because they <laughs> knew they were going to need it for the upcoming, you know, day or whatever. And I think so the sorcerer, Simon says at one point, oh, I'm bad at attuning, which is like not, really not a thing, a thing that yeah. you should do. <laughs> right. Because th- uh, the number of attunement slots is part of game balance so like don't take that away from someone hey if you're one of those players who like really likes to handicap yourself don't um but i think it's very valid for an artifact level item to be like oh this isn't a normal attunement process mm-hmm. you know like there's a skill challenge or or like we need to rp this and you need to come to, to some sort of realization or solve a puzzle or something or you know like i mean the helm of disjunction isn't exactly this but like if you you know you had an item that was made for wizards and you're a sorcerer Right. So you're trying to master the item to overcome that or something like that. And like you're making it a plot point and, and like a plot reward and an investment of time and effort. Like, sure. Like then you can kind of like you're making them, you know, you're making mechanics around uh, a, a, an attempt to like make an exception. Right. I do like that. Like, you know, do I allow the bard to attune to the robe of the arch magi? Well, you know, let's talk it out. Yeah. Like, let's see if you can. Let's see if the robe will let you. <laughs> right. I mean, you are a bard. So like. So, you know, you know <laughs> slip yep. into something more comfortable <laughs> like you. <laughs> um, another piece of the film that I thought uh, was like just begging to be stolen was the High Sun game sequence, like the entire dungeon crawl sequence there. Like, I mean you could rip that wholesale right like competitive dungeon mm-hmm. crawling like let's go <laughs> like, it was you, made specifically for people to do that right it happened on a grid the whole thing yeah exactly exactly oh oh my god speaking of grids i don't know only because i've i saw the sequence like three or four times because i kept falling asleep shortly thereafter because i started the movie too late <laughs> the 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 fight in the underdark the basalt. Right, with the assassin what basalt it's <laughs> it's basalt yes yeah yeah it's on a hex. It's on a hex. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Yes. <laughs> so good. Uh, but yeah, the, the dungeon crawl in, in the High Sun games is very clearly on a grid. Uh, it's just so so fantastic. And then the, the gelatinous cube is exactly one grid square, you know, like just a, right. a perfect five by five <laughs> cube. The meta-ness of that entire sequence, right? Like all of the the Easter eggs for longtime players, right? Like the word displacer beast never doesn't never get uttered in the movie. Exactly. Exactly. But it doesn't it's need to be just a terrifying looking thing with like you clearly learn has, you know, illusion, illusion powers. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And teeth. It, it, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, and, and you know, there's a mimic and no one says, Oh, that's a mimic. Right. Right. And like people are just running around opening chest and you're like well i know what's happening here right that that almost feels like a dark souls call out like oh I, interesting i don't yeah, know like uh, angelo please weigh in <laughs> uh, well there's like I, there's a, a long-running joke with dark souls of like if you die to a mimic if you don't hit your chest with an axe first like that's on you because like there's just like a lot of mimics in that game uh, uh <laughs> but anyway like so it, it kind of felt like you know i mean not that whatever mimics are certainly a D truism but uh it just kind of felt like people were going all nuts opening chests and i was like ah there's gotta there's uh-huh, gotta uh-huh. be one you know like this is this is a dark souls thing you should have <laughs> learned <laughs> and i think so 
if you're a longtime player watching that scene, like that that whole scenario, there are so many things that you recognize and notice. And that's part of the reward for being a D&D player and watching this movie. But at the table, you're, the players are both the players, right? The characters in the movie, but also the audience watching the movie. In a, in a, like a big set piece like this, an arena battle with like all these moving parts and pieces, I would absolutely throw in not just like things they'd recognize, but like things that the characters would recognize from earlier in the campaign, things or people or references that the players recognize from other D&D campaigns that we played, from other campaigns that are not D&D at all, from things that didn't happen at the table but happened in our real lives, like just little little references that don't even necessarily need to like it doesn't need to be like oh a person from that other like an npc from that other game is talking to us it can just be the name of the inn or you know a sign on uh, like on the wall telling you which way the armory is you know right the the ship is named the hostile negotiator because it always is because it always is what else could it be named (laughs) it echoes across the multiverse (laughs) it seemed a little arbitrary what direction the um the like arena kind of started disintegrating from, but I think that's fine. Um, you you kind of just want it to continue pushing them forward anyway. Like you don't want them to be careful, right? You want them turning every corner blind. Um, right. And so as long as you have just enough of a chase element in the tabletop like version of it, then I think like the dissolving arena aspect is like served its purpose. Yeah, I think if you wanted to run that at a table, what I would not do is figure out the like AI logic of the arena and then write that down and then have that run on like, oh, in round one, you know, it yeah. manipulates this way. In round two, it manipulates this way. Or like, oh, I'll six different options and I'll roll a die. Like I wouldn't, I yeah, wouldn't you gotta do like, that. You got to like Hunger Games it, right? Where there's, there's an architect who is trying to make it exciting. And then sometimes yeah, that works in your favor because, you know, like you're ahead and you're exciting. And sometimes it doesn't because you're too careful. Right. And the the players and the characters should be rewarded for, you know, quick thinking or recognizing a reference or, you know, like watching other people and learning from their mistakes or whatever, right. you know? Yeah, exactly. So we already talked about something that worked for the movie, but didn't work in the game. And I want to talk about something that actually almost made me stop the movie because I watched it on streaming and I actually paused it and was like, do I... Do I keep watching this movie? I mean, I guess I'll keep watching this movie. We'll see what happens. Something that does not work in the movie, but I think is perfectly fine in a game, is the fridging of the wife. Like, in the first five minutes, you kill the wife, which is, okay, I get it, a gaming trope, but also it's 2023 and we don't need to do it. Uh, like, and but However, I think in a game, if you, as an individual player is writing are writing the backstory for your character it is absolutely fine for you to be like my family died and if it was the wife who died that's fine now if if everyone at your table is a, the character is a dude whose wife died then like maybe that's probably an above the table issue that you need to talk about uh but for the most part like it's fine it's like it's perfectly reasonable backstory i don't love it in a movie as a gm don't write all your npcs with like fridged wives don't don't bury your gaze don't uh don't kill off all your uh, characters of color this movie had a twofer right at the beginning right it's it's the black woman who dies in the first five minutes so That's true. yeah 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 uh 
Didn't love it. Uh, in a game, though, perfectly fine. Sorry. You just reminded me of the beginning of the movie. And the Eric Hooker's name is Jonathan. <laughs> okay, that <laughs> was perfect, just, though. And I just can't. I, I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that came from their game table. Absolutely. Like, I mean, that definitely this is, is a I, real character. They were like, we're putting a Jonathan in this movie, damn it. This is absolutely, this is our advice, which is if you can't think of a name, <laughs> pick, take a, a real pick name just a random name. Yeah, and change one thing, <laughs> which absolutely happened here. They were like, Jonathan. Yep, that's, Jonathan. that's their name jo- forever. Uh, and they definitely tried to walk it back. They were like, no, their name isn't Jonathan. That's not an Eric Okra name. And the whole table was like, yes, it is. Yeah, it's their it name is. forever. <laughs> yeah, so as we wrap this up, I just wanted to uh, I want to call out one other scene that I really enjoyed um, that I think they handled in the movie the exact same way you would do it in the game, which was the speak with dead sequence. <laughs> it's like, nope, wrong body. Okay, dig up another one, right? And how long does it take? It takes that long. Like exactly as long as it takes to like run the same sequence of like a dig, an open, a hold the little like pendant and say the words and then <gasps> new body, right? Like you just run through them until you find the right ones. It's played really well for like comedic effect and a little bit of background and lore building and like a little bit of a challenge but like could have also been really annoying had you been like well now you gotta wait till tomorrow because you've used all your speak with dead slots for the day and it's like yes oh come on right oh you're not a warlock you can't cast this cast this at will yeah absolutely yeah no it's like i've got an item it's fine like let's just do this like let's make it fun like i thought that was just a fantastic sequence and then of course miscounting the uh the spells at the end or the, the questions at the end and leaving him trapped in the spell is just like peak player character <laughs> also just screwing with uh the players oh, and right, counting yeah. everything as a question every is question absolutely yeah like it's a classic gm move it's a classic dick move if you're not letting them cast the spell more okay right? yeah exactly <laughs> why did you end it with okay you made it a question good question Dead. <laughs> uh, i think we should also call out uh hugh grant here who Oh, such a is, good preening villain. Uh, so any movie, anytime Hugh Grant goes to jail, right? It's this movie, um, Paddington 2, and I guess real life. is. <laughs> <laughs> He's, yes, yeah, such a great villain and really sort of showcases how to make someone who is smarmy, who like you absolutely want to, you want to murder, but you don't end up having, you don't have to murder them, right? You know, actually... By way of conclusion, can we talk about how good the ending of this actually is? The the way that they pull the, you've gotten what you wanted, right? You have saved the day for your definition, but now there's the extra thing, right? Like, like you didn't need to know that like he was just the puppet, right? Like for the whole movie... I mean, it's not exactly a surprise that he's just the puppet, but like for the whole movie, right? It's just about getting revenge on Hugh Grant's character. And then they're getting away scot-free. They've got everything they wanted. And what happens? Well, they cast the spell. And so now they have to go back and save Neverwinter, right? Because they have a guilty conscience about it. And it's like, that is the kind of twist that you want right? You don't want a twist that creates failure. You want a twist that it's like, okay, you win. You got what you wanted. 
but like is that what you really wanted do you really want to be the ones who condemned neverwinter so that you could walk away with a pile of cash and settle your revenge i think in order to have a conclusion like this it the onus is both on the gm and on the players to play characters who would do something like turn around you have right? to try yeah you have to trust the characters that they're going to care about the twist right right and i think that that's something that you know we spend a lot of time sort of trying to impress upon players which is you can be a selfish person as a character but you should have an arc right so like they don't start off being like we want to be heroes and save save a whole city right they they have their very focused like we want to get out of jail we're going to go save my daughter we're going to bring my wife back like that's it they right? have a failed harper <laughs> yeah right who like got his wife killed because he's because he stole red wizard gold right you know <laughs> and but like deep down inside the, this is the classic chaotic good chaotic neutral neutral good true neutral party right like the upper right quadrant who are mostly doing things for themselves but look I'm I'm not gonna let the orphanage burn down. I'm like I'm gonna go try to stop that. Well, I, I mean, even an evil character, an outright evil character, right? Like that th that turns that knowledge turns like Hugh Grant into an irredeemably evil character, right? But like even just like generally evil characters, selfish evil characters are not gonna be like, oh yeah, no, no, no. I definitely condemn you know a million people to die and the expansion of Thay into Neverwinter. Um, and, and well, I think the expansion of Thay certainly, right? Like you, you could have, you could have a very selfish character be like, I mean, Oh, but that's like, certainly I'm bad selfish, for me. but like, I'm not going to condemn a million people to die so that I can have like a few trinkets. Like, like that's sociopathic. Oh, that's, we've learned and, something new about Shane. You're broken well, well. as a human. If that's your, like, <laughs> <laughs> and and i think that that is the thing that i liked about this movie the most is it takes these characters seriously and the people who are playing these characters also take them seriously as like real people in a real world right like on a sheet i definitely live and i get a bunch of gold if we just sail away right and there's nothing on my sheet that dings me like i'm not a paladin i don't fall you know but there are story consequences, and part of that is my conscience, you know, and my reputation and, and and all of that. And I also really liked that the solution to that problem was just a denouement, right? It wasn't another entire adventure. It was like, let's come up with a, a smart idea, use the portal, draw people away, great, like invasion foiled. Right. And then go have a fight. Right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do you hear that, Ishan? It's the sound of all my ill-gotten loot draining from the picture of my mouth. Well, we're going to have to go back to work in the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So it is the last week of anime. And we bring you Kurosaki Ichigo. Uh-huh. And what is that? 
<laughs> he's a, he's a, your archetypal shonen protagonist from uh, the manga and anime Bleach. No, oh, okay, I've heard of that. <laughs> hey, there you go. It's the right? guy from and, Bleach. And Great. after like a ten year hiatus, it's back, and it is amazing. Look, hey, we've been through. This we've already before. pitched enough media on this show. Okay. <laughs> now I I will say like most shonen characters when when you're trying to build them in D&D, they're just too powerful, especially at the end of their arcs, right? Like the first series ends with Ichigo like slashing the tops off mountains with like one swing of his sword arm, right? So like that obviously is not happening in D&D. Mm-hmm. So we sort of need to like pick a, a middle point where they're both powerful or at least begin at the beginning of their show and then work our way up as we grow in power, right? So to sort of the maximum of, of D&D, like to, of the system. Okay. To set expectations. So, Shane, I'm as I'm sure you know, Ichigo yes. is <laughs> a substitute Shinigami. Uh, he is a high school student uh, who moonlights as a soul reaper who helps to shepherd the souls of the dead to the afterlife and slay the horrible giant undead abominations that prey upon them. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, he has a sword that is a manifestation of his soul. Uh, I'll say, if you're trying to play an anime character, especially like a shonen character in in D&D, you probably want something that's kind of grab and go. You don't want to do too, too much reflavoring. So that's sort of, that that has been uh, the lens through which I have created this build. So not uh, this is not Captain America's shield is an Eldritch Blast levels of reflavoring. Okay. Okay. I'll um, believe you on that. Okay. His main abilities are that he hits really hard and he won't stay dead. <laughs> uh, and that's a nice thing about this. Like, this is not a Naruto character who has like 40 different things that he can do. For the most part, when Ichigo confronts a problem or a villain, he just swords harder at them uh, until he wins, okay. which is great because we can sword pretty hard in D&D. Great. All right, so what is the build? It is Asamar, Hexblade, Pact of the Blade, Warlock 14, Oath of Vengeance, Paladin 6. Now, there are a few uh, integral abilities that I think we have to emulate in order for this character to really feel like Ichigo. The first one is his ho- is his hollow transformation. There is He is at war with the, the undead monster uh, within him. And we can get that from... Uh, Asamar, the sort of like rebooted from Mordenkainen Presents Monsters of the Multiverse. Um, you get resistance to necrotic and radiant damage. That's great. But the important thing here is that once a day, uh, we're going to go with radiant consumption. Uh, you deal radiant damage equal to your proficiency bonus to all creatures within 10 feet of you. And then uh, once each turn, you deal proficiency bonus additional uh, radiant damage when you attack. Uh, when he transforms into his hollow form, uh, he's dangerous to everybody. Uh, he might attack his friends, uh, but uh, it, it's certainly an increase in in uh, attack capability. The other things that we're looking to emulate here are, and this is difficult, is his sort of bread, not his bread and butter attack. It's his his, his signature attack, Getsuka Tensho, which is a uh, it's a it's a sword beam, right? He like swings his sword so hard that like it creates a wave of dark coruscating energy that annihilates whatever is in, it, is in its path. This is his opener. It's also 
usually his finisher. Oh, okay. Um, so it's an Eldritch Blast. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing, right? I think you can see, how do you build a character in 5e who is a melee sword user who also has a very strong uh, ranged attack? And yes, we do have to start off by reflavoring Eldritch Blast, but we have a few other options that we'll get to in a second. And then the last thing is we need to somehow model his Bankai, which is uh, sort of the secondary release of of his sword, which makes him, you know, faster and stronger and able to do everything better. Okay. So we kick it off with five levels of Warlock. Uh, Hexblade get, lets you use charisma for basically everything you want attack and damage your uh, bonus action curse is going to let you crit on 19 to 20 and do additional damage you'll take pack to the blade your invocation you want improved pack weapon which lets you uh, use a greatsword as your pack weapon uh, and then also at third level you'll be able to pick up misty step uh, one of the techniques Ichigo is very good at is Shunpo. He can move extremely quickly. You know, that anime thing where they disappear and reappear somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And they're not teleporting. They're just moving really quickly, but we're teleporting. Yep. For here, he learns Getsuga Tensho like pretty early on. And I think at low levels, we can just start it off with an Eldritch Blast. Is it kind of a an arc that hits more than one thing? Yes. And at higher levels, you can do that. And with Agonizing Blast, it does a lot of damage. Now, you may be thinking, if you if you watch the anime, you might be like, oh, but it's it looks like very dark energy, isn't it, necrotic? Um, Shane, can you guess why we would not be wanting to deal a lot of necrotic damage when we are begin by mainly fighting undead? I can. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that does seem like it would not work in, uh, in Yield D&D. Right, which is why we also didn't take Necrotic Shroud as the option from Asamar. You're going to just run up against a bunch of undead that uh, are either resistant or maybe even just immune to necrotic damage. Yeah, and, that'll do it. Yeah. So radiant damage is really the is what we're looking for here. Fire would also be fine, you know, whatever. Um, at five, you finally get your Eldritch Smite, which just lets you output a bunch of damage a couple of times of combat until you run out of spell slots. And that's great because one of the things that we run into when we build spellcasters is like who are supposed to emulate melee characters is you have all these spells and you're like, okay, how do I reflavor these spells? What do I do with this? You don't need to do that. Ichigo doesn't cast spells. Don't cast spells. Eat, <laughs> eat all of your spells. Use all of your spell slots to smite. That's pretty much all this character does except for one or two exceptions. And of course, that is your Bankai, which is uh, it's a transformation that happens that he can only maintain, at least at first, for a short amount of time, but it increases his combat capabilities immensely. We're going to go with the third level spell, Spirit Shroud, which I think is from Tasha's. And when it first came out, we called it out as a very good spell. It's concentration, um, and you'll... Uh, for up to a minute. And as long as it lasts, you do an additional 2d8 damage on all of your attacks. And if you continue to upcast it, as you get stronger, as your Bankai gets stronger and stronger, it does uh, additional damage. So you can eventually do like 3d8 damage on every attack, 4d8 damage on every attack. That's in addition to being able to drop Eldritch Smite and in a little bit, being able to drop Divine Smite. And then last thing that I, I... sort of really want to like get into here is Shane, did we talk at all about like when we reviewed the wild mount book, right? It introduced 
Dunamancy, or like a new new subclasses, mm-hmm. new like wizard spells. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten that those spells are only available. They're not wizard only. They are subclass specific spells. You okay. have to be a Dunamancer. A Dunamancer, yes. Like one of the two, like Chronergy or Graviturgy in order to use it. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten that that was the case. And that's terrible game design. <laughs> Okay, where are you going with to this? To keep those. So I feel like Eldritch Blast doesn't quite capture what you see from Ichigo when he gets to like when he gets better at using his Gatsuga Tensho. What we're what we're looking for is really something that's like an arc of damage and a lot of damage. You could reflavor, you know, fireball or something like that. Um at higher levels, Hexblade gets cone of cold. I think that works really well. But the spell that probably fits the best with no reflavoring is one of the Dunamancy spells, Pulse Wave, which is a 30-foot cone that deals force damage and enemies that fail to save get pushed 15 feet. Here's the thing. It's not a particularly strong spell, right? Like, if you're a GM, just let your Warlock take the spell. Just be happy that they're not trying to take Hypnotic Pattern. <laughs> okay. I Sure. I... <laughs> whatever break the cardinal rule of the of the character creation forge it's been 342 episodes who cares <laughs> i mean there are other ways to get it you can take five levels of dynamancy wizard if you really want to you could take six levels of lore bard don't do those things either like ask your gm for pulse wave or skip pulse wave altogether and like stick with your eldritch smite and then just wait out for Chrono cold it'll be fine all right. Are we getting anything out of Paladin other than Smite? Uh, you get Vow of Enmity from uh, Oath of Vengeance. You have a lot of things competing for your bonus action. You have, you know, your Hollow Transformation, your Bankai, your Vow of Enmity. I think that's fine because Ichigo has a bunch of different abilities that are sort of competing for his attention and, you know, sort of warring for his soul, right? It's fine. We get extra attack so we don't have to pay for it with invocations. Or if protection also is, you know protagonist armor for you and all your friends mm-hmm. okay you know as you finish out warlock you have some spells that you could potentially use banishment and far step which fit the character um armor of hexes is great and you know gives you basically a 50 percent mischance uh but for the most part what you're going to do is drop a bonus action to power yourself up in whatever way you determine smite and then every round power yourself up with another bonus action and smite Sometimes you shoot, sometimes you just hit really hard with your sword and sword harder. The end. (laughs) That was well worth 10 minutes. Thank you, anime. (laughs) See you again next year. (laughs) Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes, and we will read it on the air. Ishan, do we have one to read? We do. This is best D&D podcast by far. Five stars from Ohm in Beijing. This is my favorite D&D podcast. The hosts are fun and humble and super knowledgeable. Highly recommend it. Um, I think probably two out of three. Uh, yeah, not, not so bad. I wouldn't um, call us fun. Uh, or humble. Um I, I have noticed that we have been climbing the charts in China uh, 
for for our like category on iTunes, which is like wild to me. But uh, it's amazing. Well, well, well. I'm really uh, th- thank you for uh, writing in, Ohm. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about legacy items. And in the character creation forge, we are building John Brown. Well, that's it for episode 342 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>